Welcome to LaGrave CRC's Sermon Podcast. Today we will hear a sermon called Irresistible Grace by Reverend Peter Yonker. As Bob mentioned a little bit earlier, today is our fourth in our series of five sermons on the Canons of Dort, and today we will be focusing on the subject of irresistible grace as taught in the canons and as uh, more importantly taught in Scripture. Um, For those of you who are visiting, we've been um, looking at one of the articles, one of the the things, the the documents that grounds us and has grounded us for 400 years. For 400 years, the canons are uh, an explanation of Scripture, an attempt to understand what Scripture teaches about how we are saved in Jesus. And we are visiting it together to look at that subject. And so we'll read from our faith book, which is the first reading from page 132. If you have one of those near you, get it out and have a look. And we'll read what the canons say about God's regenerating work in our life. And it's, it's pretty dense stuff. If, again, if you're visiting, these are denser than usual sermons. So you, we, we all have been putting on our thinking caps, including me. And this is the regeneration, the new creation, the raising from the dead and the making alive so clearly proclaimed in scriptures, which God works in us without our help. But this certainly does not happen only by outward teaching, by moral persuasion, or by such a way of working that after God's work is done, it remains in human power whether or not to be reborn or converted. Rather, it is an entirely supernatural work, one that is at the same time most powerful and most pleasing, a marvelous, hidden, and inexpressible work, which is not less than or inferior in power to that of creation or raising the dead, as Scripture, inspired by the author of this work, teaches. As a result, all those in whose hearts God works in this marvelous way are certainly, unfailingly, and effectively reborn, and they do actually believe. And then the will, now renewed, is not only activated and motivated by God, but in being activated by God is also itself active. For this reason, people themselves, by that grace which they have received, are also said to rightly repent and believe. So that is the canons, and now let's read what Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, that is found on page 1815 in your pew Bibles. And I think you'll hear that a lot of what the canon says comes from Ephesians and from some other passages. Paul says, as for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now in work at those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. 
God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. There are some people in this world, some individuals, famous individuals, that when you hear their names, their names are instantly associated with a character trait. So as soon as you hear their name, you will think of some human characteristic. So for example, if I say Albert Einstein, you think of intelligence, genius. If I say Abraham Lincoln, you think of honesty, integrity, maybe leadership. If I say Usain Bolt, you think of speed. If I say Mother Teresa, you think of Christian service, sacrifice, sainthood. And these are all people, and there are many like this, who've lived their lives uh, with such focus and with such passion and such intensity for one thing, that that thing comes to mind whenever you hear their name. It's almost like that character trait is part of their brand, right? To use branding language. You think of them, you think of that thing. And why am I telling you this? Why am I saying this? Well, um, it's because of verse 7 in our passage. Verse 7 has a really interesting turn of phrase that I don't think I'd noticed until this week when I prepared for this sermon. Ephesians 2, if you grew up as a Christian, is a really well-known passage, right? And we kind of know what it teaches. At the beginning of the passage, it talks about human sin. It's almost like uh, it's proclaiming total depravity again, right? It's very dark at the beginning. But then it gives the good news. God has raised us up by his grace through Jesus. We were seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. We are saved by God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. And then verse 7 suggests why God did that. Now, I don't think verse 7 gives a complete answer to that question. There's lots of reasons we could say why God did that. But verse 7 is a very interesting take on why God saved us in Jesus. He did it in order that in the coming ages, he may show the incomparable riches of his grace. Why did God do that? Why did God save us? So that in the coming ages... When people think of God, they will think of his grace, the incomparable riches of his grace that he lavished on us in Jesus. In the coming ages, when people talk about God, the character trait that will jump to their mind is grace. Grace will be like God's brand. People will say, oh, the God who sent Jesus Christ, that God, he's a God of amazing grace. And if you think I'm overestimating that, um, you should know that it's not the first time in the book of Ephesians that Paul has made that kind of association. If you go back to chapter 1, in chapter 1, verse 6, he essentially does exactly the same thing. He says that God has saved us in Jesus and blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And then in verse 6, he says, why has he done this? To the praise of his glorious grace. 
God wants us so that when people think of him and when they think of his name, they think of his grace. Grace is central to God's brand. Philip Yancey tells a story about C.S. Lewis. Uh, Philip Yancey, of course, has written a lot about grace. He tells a story that uh, there was a comparative religions conference. So scholars of religion were all gathered somewhere. I don't know where it was, maybe Oxford. And they were in a seminar and they were arguing about um, what was unique about Christianity. Is there anything, these scholars wanted to ask, that makes Christian faith unique among all the religions of the world? And they talked about the moral code and they said, oh, no, that's not unique. All religions have some sort of moral code. What about the incarnation, God becoming man? Well, that's really special, but there are other religions that have stories of God's becoming people. Well, what about the resurrection? Again, incredibly important to us, but uh, not completely unique in religions. There are other religions that have resurrection stories. So they were having this argument. They're going round and round. C.S. Lewis walks in the room, hears what they're arguing about, and says, oh, it's easy. I can tell you what's unique. It's grace. It's grace. And the scholars thought about that for a while, and they agreed. It is grace. God's grace in Jesus Christ. God who shows grace is unique to our faith. This beautiful thing is at the center of who he is. It's what he wants us to think of when we think of him. And because it's what he wants us to think of when we think of him, it's also what he wants people to think of when they think of us. We are called to glorify God's name, to magnify his name. What does that mean? That means when people see us and hear us, the things that make God's name great appear in us. It is God's desire that when he sees the people of the grave, he goes, oh yeah, the Grave Avenue Christian Reformed Church, those people, they are really into grace. They love grace. Now, what is this grace that we're talking about? If you grew up in the church, you hear it all the time. Maybe you think you understand it and you know it, but let's not take anything for granted. What is grace? How shall we redefine it? What is this grace that God wants us to understand is at the center of his reputation? Well, over the years, you've probably heard some different definitions that people give for grace. Uh, one that I've heard a lot, I think I heard it in seminary even, was unmerited favor. Grace is unmerited favor. So if you show kindness or favor to someone who doesn't deserve it, someone who hasn't merited it, that's grace. You do it freely, they haven't asked for it, you're showing grace. That's a definition. Is that an adequate definition of Christian grace as revealed in Scripture? I'm not so sure that it is. And let me try to explain why. Okay, suppose it's midweek here at the grave. I'm in the office. It's near lunchtime. And I say to Bob, Bob, I want tacos for lunch. I'm going to the taco shop. I'm going to get three tacos. Bob, you want me to get you some tacos? And Bob, who loves tacos, says, yes, Peter, I want you to get me some tacos. So I go down to the taco shop and I come back with six tacos, three for me and three for Bob. And when I give Bob the tacos, I say, you know what, Bob? This is on me. You don't have to pay for this. This is on the house. And Bob says, thank you. Now, is that grace? It's certainly unmerited favor, right? Bob has done nothing to earn those tacos. I gave them to him out of my own free will. He's done many excellent things, but, <laughs> but nothing taco worthy. 
So, but you can see, right? That's a free offer of, of you know, I'm doing this. He isn't, you know, he's not paying for it. It's, it's, is that kindness grace? I don't think so. Because not only is grace something kind given to someone who doesn't deserve it, it's kindness, it's favor given to someone who deserves the opposite. The grace we see in Scripture is not simply unmerited favor in general. It's favor, kindness given to someone who has hurt us, who has caused trouble and deserves the opposite of grace, maybe deserves punishment, maybe deserves rebuke. So Christian grace is, 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 is more than just unmerited favor. It's unmerited favor in the face of hurt. So you want a picture of a dinner that is actual grace, don't think of this taco story. Think of the parable of the prodigal son. The dinner that the father gives to the son after he comes home from the far country. The son has earned his father's rebuke. Instead, he gets a hug, and he gets the fatted calf killed, and he gets a feast, a party. That is grace. So true Christian Christian grace has two bits. It's the kindness, and it's the favor that's unearned. But there's also, when you show grace, some absorption. You absorb hurt. You absorb wrong. It's both the giving of goodness and the absorption of wrong. That's the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? He absorbs our suffering. He absorbs our sin. He absorbs our pain. And he gives us kindness. He gives us favor. He gives us a feast. That's grace. That's the grace that lives at the heart of God. That's the grace that he wants at the center of his reputation. That's the grace he's looking for in us. So that's this grace that we're talking about, that the canons are talking about, that scripture talks about. For the rest of the sermon, I'd like to talk about how is that grace woven into our lives? How does the grace of God come into our ordinary lives? Because that is the chief concern of the canons and the chief concern of Ephesians 2. And I want to say two things about how that grace of God intersects with our lives. First, I want to say that God's grace is the cause of our salvation. I think you heard the canons proclaiming that loudly, and when they try to explain how grace was the cause of our salvation, they are pushing against a different account, which is the Arminian count, right? The Arminians are a group of Christian people. They are Christians who had a different way of understanding salvation, and the canons of Dort are pushing against that. So what's the difference between the two accounts of grace and salvation? To get at that, we are going to have an in-sermon quiz. Now, the only ones who have to take this quiz are people who grew up in our tradition. If you're a visitor and you haven't been Christian Reformed, you are under no obligation to take this quiz. The rest of you, um, well, you're not really under obligation, but I hope that you do. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or speak out, but if you could give a slight nod or a slight no... (laughs) depending on the answer. So I'm going to give an account of salvation, okay, an account of salvation by grace through Jesus. When I'm done, you tell me, is that what the canons of Dort teach, what our church teaches about salvation, or isn't it? Okay, so when we are lost in our sin, being dead in your sin is like being at the bottom of a deep hole. When you're lost in sin, it's like you're in this impossibly deep hole and you're stuck in the muck and, and you can't climb out of that hole. You're miserable and you can't climb out by your own effort. 
you need a rescue, you need salvation. God saves you and he does it by sending a ladder. Jesus is the ladder. At Bethlehem, at his birth, he comes down and he comes right down into the muck with you, right? He's born. And then by his life and his death and his resurrection and by his ascension, he builds this ladder from the muck all the way up to the heights of heaven. A gracious ladder and we are able to take that ladder and climb out and we are saved. Is that salvation according to the canons of Dort? All right, most of you are doing very well on this. The answer is no. No, it is not. It's a lovely story and it gets many things right, but it is not salvation according to the canons of Dort because it still involves our choice. We have to grab the ladder. We have to choose to grab the ladder. We have to climb out. The canons say something different, and so do Ephesians 2. What is the image in Ephesians 2 that Ephesians 2 uses to describe our state when we're lost in sin? We're dead. It says it twice. Verse 1 and verse 5. We're dead. Dead people can't choose to climb ladders. Dead people can't make choices. So the account of Ephesians and the account of the canons is that this grace comes down and it doesn't just bring the ladder, it reanimates us. It changes our faculties. It opens our wills so that we even have the will to choose the ladder and climb. Read it carefully and you will see that this is exactly what Ephesians 2 verse 8 says. That's the most famous verse in Ephesians, right? You've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not your own from yourselves. This is a gift of God, okay? The first part of that verse, you've been saved by grace through faith. If that's all Paul said, it could almost be the Arminian account. You've been saved by grace, that's the ladder, through faith. That's us, right? Climbing the ladder. But that's not all the verse says. It says, And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. What does the word this refer to? I apologize for getting grammatical with you, but sometimes if you want to do it right, you got to get grammatical. What is the antecedent of the word this? And this is a gift of God. You are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It's both the grace and the faith, right? It's both those things. They are both a gift. It's not just the ladder that saves you. The ability to choose the ladder, both the grace and the faith, it's all from God, say the canon, says Ephesians. It's like what we read in, in the paragraph I read from the canons. Salvation is an entirely supernatural work. So grace is the complete cause of salvation. I know this has been really theological and technical and even grammatical, and maybe you think, so what? But it makes a difference. Think of yourself. Think of who you are. Think of how your mind works. Think of your ability to mess things up. Would you want any part of salvation to be left up to you? Would you even want 1% of your salvation to depend on you, or would you rather have it completely dependent on God and his grace? I would choose God and his grace every time, and I think you would too. And that's the good news. So grace is the cause of our salvation. The second thing I want to say is that grace also continues our salvation. 
The story of Scripture is not that once you're lifted out of the hole, God says to you, congratulations, you're saved, now go out there and be good, and I'm watching you. No. The story is that God's grace continues to be the central operating principle in your lives. Everything you choose, everything you do is hemmed in behind and before by grace. It's grace along the whole journey. That's verse 10 of our passage. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Grace has been ahead of us and ahead of you on the path, working things out, and grace goes with you on the journey. That's a deeply biblical pattern. Hebrews 12. Run with perseverance the race marked out for you, keeping your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of your faith. Doesn't just cause it, he continues it. Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to do. You know who understood this? John Newton the man who wrote Amazing Grace. In fact, in the hymn Amazing Grace, which we will sing later, John Newton is teaching Canons of Dort theology. I know you don't think of Amazing Grace as a theological song, but it really is. We're learning theology from it. Verse 2. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved. How precious is that grace appear the hour I first believed. Grace is at the cause of your salvation." Verse 4, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Right? He's teaching the same thing. It's grace at the beginning, and grace all the way down from end to end. It's grace all the way through along the journey. This is the great truth of the gospel, and it's true whether you realize it or not. And I know that as you're going through life, it's hard for us to feel it, right? Sometimes when you're in the middle of hard times and conflict, you don't feel the grace, all you feel is the trouble. But grace is there. Grace is all around you, through all those things, all the time. In 1995, I was there when my mentor, John Timmer, preached his final sermon at Woodlawn Christian Reformed Church after 40 years in in ministry, and John was a very reticent fellow. He was not one to tell you stories from his own life, but at that final sermon, he was willing to do that. And he reflected on the whole arc of his ministry, and he was very honest that he said for, for a huge part of his ministry, he was essentially terrified all the time, and, which is not, it's just more common than you think. But for him, it was especially acute because he started off as a missionary in Japan, and if you know anything about Japan, it's not uh, a fertile ground for the gospel. So John had to learn the Japanese language, which he said was like an invincible dragon to him. And he didn't just learn it so he could speak with people. He had to get up and preach to Japanese people in Japanese. And he said the experience of doing that was really discouraging. He felt like he was failing all the time. This is what he said. Sermon after sermon, another clinker. Another clinker that dropped from the pulpit like a wingless bird and hit the floor with a thud. Another sermonic disaster. And so he'd be deeply discouraged. But then someone would come up to him after sermon and said, Pastor, 
your words really touched me. And then even more miraculously, someone would come up and say, Pastor, I think I am finally ready to be baptized. And John was stunned. And he knew this couldn't have anything to do with him. It had to be all grace. And as he talked about the whole arc of his ministry, he said, that's what I've found along every part of the journey. It's not me. I am not the author of my life. I am not the one who deserves applause. My life is a story of God's unfailing grace. In that farewell sermon, John got to the end of his ministry and he wanted to say one thing to the people. And it's the same one thing that the Hannah's of Dort want to say to you. It's the same thing that Ephesians 2 is trying to say to you. It's the same thing that I'm trying to say to you this morning. And it's this, grace is all around you. Grace is all around you all the time from beginning to end. When you go to have that difficult conversation at work this week, grace is all around you. When you're that doubting person who's plagued by doubts about your faith and wondering if you can possibly keep hanging on to this faith that you've had since childhood, don't be afraid. Grace is all around you. If you're beset by temptation, there's a thing in your life that you can't get rid of and you keep coming back to it again and again, don't be afraid. Grace is all around you. If you're going to have that treatment this week, that surgery, don't be afraid. Grace is all around you. You are God's handiwork. God is the craftsman and grace is his tool. Grace has brought you safe thus far and grace will lead you home. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for your amazing grace that has saved people like us. We are keenly aware of... um, the deep hopes of our heart, Lord, Um, and we're also keenly aware of the ways in which we fail and fall. Thank you for the gospel, Lord, that um, you are stronger than our falling and your love is deeper than any depth to which we can fall. Thank you for the blood of your son, which has given us this undeserved grace and absorbed so much of our misdoings. Lord, I pray that this church and all the people in it may be known by your grace. Amen. This has been the Grave Circe's Sermon Podcast. Thank you for watching.